Father, we ask today that you would, like always, we want to come before your word and explain it well and hear it well and be transformed by it. We've always wanted to as you told us in your word, to be a pillar in the support of the truth. And so we ask today that you would make the truth real to us by your spirit, that you would build up your people and convert people who are not your people. We ask you in Christ's name, amen. You know, in the New Testament, like, Persecution is very prevalent. It's um, something at the center of discussion in both Jesus' discussion and his life and in the apostles' like discussions to us or, or words to us and in their lives. And so we know that that is part of what it means to follow in the footsteps of Christ. There are some people that might say something like, yeah, but Jesus suffered so that I don't have to suffer. And that would be true in an ultimate sense. But the reality is, is as you follow him today in the period that you're living in, as you await the coming kingdom in its fullness, uh, suffering is a part of this life. Sometimes you will be you would suffer at the hands of religious people, you know, and sometimes it would be like reckless, like rebellious people. But know for certain that suffering is a part of what one experiences. And so there's always this preparation for suffering. I've told you guys many times, my, <coughs> my own father would kind of reiterate that to us often. Prepare yourself, prepare your life so that you're ready to face those things. They are a very uh, re- reality in your life, and you should know that. This instance of understanding suffering and grasping it and working through it was very dear to the apostle Peter and I say that because in the first letter that we have in first Peter he speaks of that in a way I would say it serves to remind him to rejoice in the Savior's faithfulness and to recognize his frailty that's like a big thing for him to rejoice in his faithfulness knowing Christ is Faithful when Peter was unfaithful and to recognize his own frailty. So he knows that he could always fall into some kind of trouble. 1 Peter 2, 21-25 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So when you think about your natural reaction to suffering, your natural reaction to difficulty, to the things that really maybe bother you, that get to you in, in many different ways, you, you look to Jesus and say, when he went through these troubles, he did not threaten. He did not threaten. When he suffered, he did not threaten. 
he entrusted himself to God. And even though he knew what it would cost him. So you just have to see that. Then later in 1 Peter 3, 14 to 16, we read, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So in the context of this, it's in real life. It, ha- it speaks of a marriage. It speaks of governing authorities over you. It speaks of a long list of people, and it says this is the way you should be. With gentleness and respect, call to them or claim to them that you live your life for Christ, and then you trust that God will take care of you. You're not to go a war, to war against those people. But like a sheep led to slaughter, you are to follow your Savior. And that's hard to get in your mind, and that's hard for me. But that is the strongest place to be, for Jesus was the strongest that ever came in this world. He was the ultimate picture of strength. And so I think today as you're looking at this and you're thinking about bearing witness under persecution, that that should help you. What does it mean for you to bear witness under persecution? It will, you will not fight the way that the world fights. You will not. That's, that's what he says. That's the example of Jesus. Gethsemane and the following arrest was a test. Jesus stayed awake and the disciples slept. And in this courtroom that both Peter and Jesus on trial before us, Jesus will be an example of one who stayed awake and did not sleep. And so he will be for us an example but more than an example, he'll be a savior for your tendency to fall asleep. So hopefully you'll see that as we move forward. So thinking about this, bearing witness under persecution, we have to think for a moment, and there's a way in which Mark writes that kind of helps you see it. He'll begin with a story, in this case with Peter, and then a second story will emerge highlighting Jesus, and then the first story will conclude focusing on Peter again. What it allows you to do is say, what's the heart of the message? The heart of the message is Jesus is the suffering servant. And you will follow him in suffering, but you're frail. And sometimes you'll fail. So let's kind of think about that as we move forward. 1454, Peter is at a distance. He is following at a distance. He, he doesn't want to be too close. Because if he's too close, he's too near the sword that can cut him down. He's too near a beating. He's too near a crucifixion. And so he is at a distance, and he is standing among those who are ready to execute Jesus. He is standing out separated from them. It doesn't feel like, when you're looking at this, that like the emphatic words where he said, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. That's not what you're seeing 
in this text. You're, he's, say, he's almost like, if I can stay far enough away from you where I don't have to be included with you, that's what I'll do. So it kind of foreshadows his denial. But it, it, it's something that we want to see because even though Peter has forsaken a discipleship of costly following for like a safe observation, even though he does that, it certainly serves for us to be reminded that Jesus went to the cross for people like that. One time I was talking to a guy about the high cost of discipleship. The young man said, I love Jesus, but I love my toys. I was pressing upon him like, you know, follow the Lord. He's like, I love Jesus, but I love my toys. I think sometimes we are not missing. The fears that we have are not the fear of death, but the fear of missing out. And he considered his, the pleasures of this life of greater weight than Jesus in that moment. So he, is, he would like to talk about Jesus, but keep him at a distance. That would be the way I would think about that. So we're bearing witness under persecution. Peter is at a distance. Jesus is taking the full brunt of this, and we see Jesus bearing witness. Verse 53 and verse 55. You can see that here. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the scribes, or, and the elders and the scribes came together. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony again G, uh, against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. So he's taken to this place with the high priest, and they're going to decide his fate. He's going to trial. That's what you see here. And Caiaphas was the high priest at that time. He was high priest from AD 18 to 36. Uh, this was not the customary place where they would meet. It's, it, it, what we see is they go to Caiaphas's house. They didn't go to the normal, ordinary place. And so that was probably, from what I understand, about a kilometer away from where they picked Jesus up. And they are taking him there uh, to meet with the whole Sanhedrin. Or at least, you would think, a number, enough of them to make a decision. Which it had to be like, in this kind of case, 36 of the 71 or something of that nature. And so... They, maybe I can't remember the exact number, but it was something akin to that. And so they're kind of they're, they're going to come together and meet. Now, what's interesting is is Mark is going to show how they violated their core way of doing things. They're, the, like the theory or philosophy of law that they had, they're going to violate it. They had a way in which they would talk about that and address that. There was something that you had the law and then you had the Mishnah that was like interpreting the law and gave the structure and that kind of thing. And so they are going to break that all along the way. Like I said, actually I gave you 36. It was actually 23 members of the Sanhedrin needed to be a part of a capital case. So that was one thing that had to take place. And then um, when things were brought to them, there had to be reasons for acquittal and after that, reasons for conviction. And so those things had to be present there it wasn't just like you got to show one side of the of the trial in, in a way and so also a couple of other things that kind of stand out is um, they they would have to have that meeting for a capital trial and then they would have to have a second follow-up one the next day um, and both of these had to be at during the daytime so the, all this is going to be thrown out with them and uh, it couldn't be on the eve of sabbath or at a festival so again, it's just like a long list of things where they're like pushing this through 
skirting the law. And, and the Jewish people were known for the, the strength of their system, and here you see the failure of their system. And the witnesses are even in, under ordinary circumstances, you would warn them of like any rumor, anything that you would bring up before us. I mean, there is a grave danger if you in some way make something up. And so the, the whole picture is, is really shocking and sad. And um, one of the things, and you probably read this a bunch in the Bible, but a charge of blasphemy could not be sustained unless the accused uh, cursed God's name. And so we're going to see them bring that to the table, but they couldn't really bring that unless that were the case. Um, so all of this stuff, you kind of could make a long list of things that they don't do well or do right. Uh, and it's not just with Jesus. Later, Josephus will speak of Jesus' brother, and they will do kind of the same thing in AD 62, and that was a historian. And so this is a long list of stuff where you're like, they just totally and completely are blinded to the law in this situation because they're the keepers of the law, and they want to break the law. And so... That's not uncommon. It is something that does happen in our world among people. But they wanted to make sure that they could take the governor, a case to the governor, and have Jesus executed. And so all that is going on. Verse 56, For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And so again, like you need two or three witnesses, but these witnesses, their testimonies don't agree. And so they're coming up with all these things and saying things, and there are things that were surrounding what Jesus said, but like a corruption in a way of what he would say. And so, they, but they even after they would bring their witness, the witnesses didn't agree. So you would have to say, no, this doesn't work. In Numbers thirty-five thirty, under the law, you could read that um, if there was a murderer and there was no one like, if there were not like a good group of witnesses, if you didn't have multiple, more than one witness, um, you could not take it to, to trial. There was just no way of doing so. And so it was to protect the potential for somebody being innocent. That's where we are. So does this happen in other parts of the world at other times? Yes. I mean, you can imagine that this, these things do happen. Even in, in, in our day and around our day and in, in countries in, like in America or in other parts of the world, there are things that go on that you know are not what they should be. And so they're bringing this charge against Jesus. And um, it's interesting. Uh, they're going to kind of like center in on this, the temple, you know, that's being man-made and then being remade, not by human hands, which is at the heart of what we would say Mark is trying to make the point about. He is going to explain that. He's going to make that clear that the builder of God's house is God's son, that Jesus is replacing the temple. That's how Mark presents it, is he is like as the place where God meets with his people. Jesus said that to remember that woman in John chapter 4, you've worshipped here, we worship there, but there's coming a, a time where we'll worship in spirit and in truth, and they will center that worship around the Lord Jesus. It will be found in his church, living stones built upon that spiritual house that Jesus is building. And so there are like things that Jesus has said about this, and he's helping them understand, but this is important to see. Now, Jesus doesn't say anything. And it's, you know he can argue. He is, he's infinitely wise. He's already dealt with these religious leaders over and over and over. They're coming up with so many different things that they 
have to say about all stuff, and Jesus will send, like confound them, and they'll just walk away and say, I shouldn't have said anything every time we come up with something. But here he is silent. Verse 60, And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is that that these men testify against you? He's, he's saying, like, is there nothing? You don't want to say anything to this? I mean, listen to what they're saying. Do you know what's at stake? Is kind of the idea. But he's not defending himself. This is a fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah 53. And if you were to you know, make a note, I would make a note if I went through it with the Bible or whatever. But Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its, before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was the suffering servant. That, that's the picture that you get. And um, as you go forward, he's going to be pressed to answer. But it's not until... His time has come for him to answer. And so we see him as this example of like willingly going. He knows all that is going to take place. He's been talking about it. And yet he comes to this place and he is silent. He does not feel like he has to defend himself. Again, what we read is he was entrusting himself to the will of the Father. In Gethsemane, is there any other way? There's no other way. He moves forward. Verse 61 and 62 but he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The way this statement might be read, like if you were to kind of think about it as the, the structure of it, it would, you would say something like, the high priest would say something like, you are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One, and then pause, expecting an answer. Like kind of putting a question mark at the end of that. It's a way in which the high priest is like making a full confession about Jesus that is true about him. And so it is pretty shocking that he does this. Later, another will do it. The centurion will speak something true. And there's very few people that are declaring truths about who Jesus is. These are some of the most clear things that you will read in Scripture about Jesus. They had learned from him that he claimed to be the, remember, the vineyard man's son and that the tenants had kind of killed him. They knew that in part, but this is so clear. It's almost like the veil is being removed. And you're able to see the secrets here unveiled. And so it's, it's been leading up to this that we would come to this place. The I am statement should stand out to you and you're like, when he says I am, I mean that's a huge thing where it's, that's been something you see in the Gospel of John. I am, I am, I am seven times. And here he says I am God's son. He interprets what that means. If you look at Daniel 7.13, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. He, he's sitting in this place of honor. He is the son in the place of honor. And then Psalm 110.1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He is the son of man here, is both fully divine and exalted. He, you're seeing him for everything that he is. Some of you here today may say, 
well, I know Jesus is nice, and I'm glad He died on the cross, but do you see Him as the crucified, risen Lord of everything that you will answer to, that I will answer to? He is Lord of all, and He, see, he will be seated or was seated in the highest place, and in, in this case, He's humbled Himself, but He will be raised, and He will be raised victorious, reigning over all things. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 speak of this, his humbling and then his exaltation. But look at 63 through 65. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? So he had been looking for witnesses. Like he had been looking for witnesses. And none of the witnesses agreed. They were all, it was the most messed up trial you could ever imagine and nobody agrees. None of the witnesses agree. They've come up there and they're coming up with the wildest things. And now the witness is the one on trial. He's the witness, the true witness. He is the only one there that is true. That is going to make a true statement about who he is. They were the blasphemers. Not him. They were blaspheming God, not him. They all condemned him to death, and they were all deserving of death. So, they begin to spit on him and to cover his face and strike him, saying to him, prophesy, and the guards received him with blows. This is a picture of the beating of the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 50, verse 6. You know, when they're thinking about this, it was no crime to call yourself Messiah. There are always stories about, is Messiah come? People are whispering along. I bet some, I've heard Messiah is over here. Is he going to come? Is he coming? That wouldn't be a problem necessarily, um, a messianic claim. Even the, although it would be really difficult, that Jesus would destroy the temple I mean, that would be, in, in our day, we'd be like, what? They're gonna, he's going to bomb the temple? and all, you know. But in this case, like, that, might, that would not bring him to the place of blasphemy. Certainly, the temple was a big part of their worship. But that's even one of those things. It was serious, but not that. But in their minds, to ascribe God's honor to oneself or to equate oneself with God, that changed everything. I really wish that you um, students here, when you, uh, if you go to college and you're somewhere that you go to, like where they're talking about Christianity, and you listen, and if they diminish the sun, they're in good company. You just need to know that. And sometimes, like, whether that be a religious institution or a secular institution, if they minimize the sun, they are walking in a long line of heretical teaching. And so when you're looking here, and he is claiming to be the Son of God, this is the statement that people would trip up over uh, year after year, century after century, throughout all kinds of things. And when you hear anyone messing with the Son, know that they are standing among their own kind. The kind that reject the Lord Jesus, the kind eternally damned, the kind that are hopeless and helpless when it comes to standing before the Almighty God. Here, Jesus 
will uphold the law and they will break the law. It's, it's interesting. In the end, like on earth, they're, they're standing in trial, like over Jesus. They're in the place of power. But in, in the future, when he returns in his glory, the tables will be turned. And they will stand under his judgment. And they will stand under it forever. They think that they have won today. But they have lost in a greater way than they could ever imagine. Because although it was the plan for him to die, it was the plan for him also to be raised. And all who reject him are hopeless and helpless. Now, we've left there and say, Jesus bearing witness tells us that he is who he says that he is. We trust that. We know it's following this, the prophecy that's been laid out, all that he's been saying along the way. I'm going this way. I'm walking this road even up to Gethsemane when you're right on the edge. And it's like he is stepping into experiencing this great and infinite cost. The suffering servant is on display in a, in a powerful way right here. He is bearing witness to who he is. Now, in the midst of that, Peter's going to deny him. Look at um, verse 66. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servants of the uh, servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you also were the Nazar uh, with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. It kind of... That's shocking. It prepared him. Like that first time, you'd think he would wake up and say, whoa, hold on just a second. I, I denied him. I denied him. You know, But he's there. He's, he's, he's really, you could say, on trial too. He, he's on trial. It, it's not just Jesus, but he's on trial. Peter is saying, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to go forward with you. I'm going to walk with you. But it's like in the middle or on the edge, I guess you could say, of this massive trial that is the hope of the ages for all of us that it's it's a corrupted trial but it is the wonderful hope of the ages on the edge of that you have this one who is claiming to follow Jesus he's on trial and there's nothing said about his motives or his feelings or any of that we just see him like he said three times I'll never I'll never do this we'll see him three times he will deny Jesus and so it's interesting, as he's trying to get away, he's trying to hide out. You've probably been in situations like that. You walk into a room and you're like, oh no. You want to circle around the room and get away from whoever or whatever that might kind of face you. And um, he's trying to step away from that, but attention is drawn to him. And we see that in a very clear way. You move forward in 69 through 72. Uh, <laughs> Edwards says this about it. With the servant girl and the bystanders, he says, like a guilty conscience, the servant girl accuses Peter a second time, and this time she enlists the bystanders in her accusation. It's almost like she's talking louder, and people are like, what, what, like somebody with Jesus? And he's like, oh, no, this is my worst nightmare. How could this be? I'm, not even, I'm trying to sit over here by the fire quietly. I have my head down, maybe a cloak on. 
but he's just like a spotlight, comes down into the moment, and he is facing this in a very uh, shocking way, and it reminds you that like where Jesus is up there faithfully doing what he should do, Peter is in a place of unfaithfulness. And you know what happens? Even if he kept trying to deny it, as the people are listening to him, the way he says stuff messes with him, you know? And some of you might say, I don't have much of an accent or whatever you'd say, how you say it maybe in a more refined way. And we'd be like, yeah, but let me listen to you for about three or four minutes and let's see if you have that. You know, it will catch you. And that's what happened. He's caught in that way. He begins, though, as he responds to curse and swear. He says, I do not know this man you speak of. But in his swearing, Edwards also said, he's swearing by God's name, which is in a way like, profaning his name that's what's happening here it's so different where he was swearing against Jesus is like a totally different kind of contrast to the oath for Jesus divine sonship that was on display and so in both of those cases you're just like man I can't believe this in the midst of this why would he do that but you know that fear drove him in that way Peter's example really for you and me is a warning it is a warning but, I mean, it was a warning then. Jesus, like, said what was going to happen. It's a warning now. I think you have to say, to be faithful to Jesus, you know that you have to stay awake. You have to be prepared. You have to always be preparing and considering and, and, and thinking about what you're saying and why you're saying it and, and building up your faith so that you understand uh, what it means to bear witness for the Lord. You're, you're constantly wanting to do that and consider it. In Acts chapter 5, though, in verse 40 and 41, you'll see Peter later. And he sa- it says, And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them. And Peter was one of them. And charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and to let them go. And then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. God's going to st- stop working with him. The Lord came back to Jesus and said, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He says, you know I love you. And Jesus is receiving that. He knew that. He pursued him. And then later you'll see, even after Jesus leaves, that Peter will know knowingly he's facing beatings and trouble and he's going to keep drawing near to the Lord. And so I think today as you look at this text and you think about it, you say at the heart of this we have a, our suffering Savior. He gave his life for us. He willingly did. He he wasn't even fighting to get away. He wasn't building a case to to get free of what he'd come to do. He is walking down that road knowing the cost. He's so willing. He is willing. He came to this earth because he was willing to die for his people. And he does this perfectly. He embodies all of the prophecy. He embodies the spirit of the prophecy. He takes it upon himself. And we who are following him out of gratitude should be willing to do the same. We are saved by grace. We are saved by grace. And we are empowered by grace to live in this way. And when we fail, which we will, grace shows up again. He never leaves us or forsakes us, even in our greatest fear. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would be good witnesses.
we know we're not going to always be good witnesses. We, we pray that we would be the kind of witnesses that give glory to Your name, that cause others to understand who Jesus is. We pray that we would not only be courageous, but that we would be clear. That we would not just say, well, it's, I try to be a nice person, but we would seek to speak the message of Christ to a lost and dying world in a way that they may understand. We need your help. We need your help. And we thank you that you promise to be with us and never forsake us. In Christ's name, amen.